what I've heard from many different pros is the best players swing aggressively to conservative targets mm. and amateurs swing aggressively to aggressive targets. But it's not that they're necessarily trying to be aggressive. It's that they're not actually thinking about what they're doing at all. And welcome to episode 26 of the Graph Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. Today is the longest episode our pod has ever had, and you know what? It deserves that time because it's all about golf's many mental demons and how we defeat them. Evan Singer of the Par Train Podcast, really an expert in this study, joined me for a conversation taking a pretty deep dive into the mental game, exploring why golfers feel shame, how one metaphor could completely alter how you think about playing the game, a mental game comparison between Colin Morikawa and Rory McIlroy. That was a fascinating conversation. Why it's so hard to transfer practice to the course, where the yips come from, and a lot more. You are not going to want to miss this conversation. Honestly, this is one of my favorite pods we have done. And having said that, just a reminder to head over and listen to some of the Partrain podcast as well. We go into it in detail here, but there are countless great conversations on their podcast and a lot to learn about this very complicated game. So you can visit thepartrain.com for more info on their brand, which includes mental coaching as well. So if you hear anything you like in this talk with Evan, that advice could be dispensed to you personally if you are interested. Also a reminder for anyone wanting more information about GraphGolf's smart golf ball and analytics platform, you can visit graph.golf and join our newsletter for company updates as well. You can also click on the club tab for a growing database of podcasts and articles. But we are going to get right into it now. Enjoy this conversation with Evan Singer of the Par Train podcast, talking about mental demons in golf and how we defeat them. It's my pleasure to welcome Evan Singer from the Par Train podcast to the show. Thank you for, for coming on. We have a lot to get to with the mental game and some of your learnings over the years, but I wanted to start with your background in golf and how the podcast started, because you guys are 169 episodes in, I believe at this point, almost yeah. six years deep. Uh, and these are, these are long episodes. These are hour long episodes. Most of them. I, I recently started with the, uh, with the Tom, coin pod and okay. kind of fell in love with it. He's one of my favorite writers. So I kind of listened to that one and then went through a bunch of the other ones. I'm fully on board the, uh, the train <laughs> at this point. So how did, how did all this start? How did you and, uh, and Matt meet and how did you start the pod? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sean. Um, like I was joking off air, it's fun to be the guest sometimes. So, um, happy to be aboard. Um, so it's a funny story. Matt and I have a mutual best friend. So I grew up with a guy named Ryan Winehouse uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a Midwest guy. I now live in LA. Um, and he was off and on one of the top amateur players in Missouri. Uh, and it's funny, looking back, we all would kind of tease him. You know, we're in like team sports. And here's my buddy playing this back then, kind of a dorky sport off on his own, playing these tournaments, you know. And he started, he got a scholarship to Missouri State um, and met a guy named Matt at Missouri State. And over the years, Matt and I have similar personalities. We're definitely both extroverts and we both are total golf nuts. Ryan is not as much of a golf nut, actually. He's kind of one of those players, a little like DJ, where he can just kind of no thought, walk up and hit it, right? Doesn't practice always been a great ball striker and he's a scratch, you know, plus one player. Matt likes to dig in. Matt loves tweaking. He's a tinkerer and I do too. I, I love digging in on certain things. So make the long story short, Sean, uh, Ryan was getting married probably about six years ago now. And Sir Mac and I, Matt, that's his last name. We're like, let's do a joint speech at the rehearsal dinner. You know, it's kind of like the best friend from growing up and the best friend through college. And we kind of did this funny skit and speech. There might've been a wig involved and some acting out, uh, you know, a scene 
on the stage and we kind of brought the house down not to pat myself on the back but it was a really good speech and people loved it and it's so weird that it came out of something like that but afterwards matt and i were like you know we kind of feed off each other pretty well and we both love talking about golf this was you know five or six years ago when it seemed almost back then too late to start a podcast it seemed back then everyone had a podcast well now it's even more so and we just kind of started it and um it kind of evolved it, it actually wasn't what it is today when we first started it we were kind of trying to at first do a lighter take more of a comedic take on the tour storylines and different things and you know as we kept going i i realized you know taking a page from stephen pressfield's book uh the legend of bagger vance author who we just had on the show yesterday that episode's dropping sunday just can't wait to share it he's one of my favorite authors and people he's all about the authentic swing right and letting that authentic swing choose you and i could kind of feel that pull of like you know I think our stuff's funny. I think it's entertaining. I think it's engaging. I think it's interesting. But at the end of the day, we're never going to have the same access as the tour, as a bar stool, as, you know, maybe one day, but, it, you know, they're always going to have that access. So getting a tour pro on the show, we've had six plus of them on the show. But, you know, our take, unless you love us as people, it's it's not that different, right? There's not a lot of differentiation. So, we basically realized, okay, what is true to us? And for me, we can get into it. You know, I've always been from an early age, I learned a lot about mindfulness and mindset work, and it's transformed my life personally. And as my career was kind of moving towards that space um, in the corporate setting, I realized, you know, a lot of people can benefit from this in the golf space. Clearly, there's been a lot of mental game stuff written and, and done. A lot of great things but the analogy i like to say sean is not everybody will choose to go to a sports psychologist's podcast right not everybody walks down the aisle of the self-help section in the bookstore right people just want to play better golf so we thought why don't we do it from people that they can relate to in a super easy simple way bring on average golfers unpack their mental games and also do it with a pj tour pro and create an open forum and a discussion and give people a platform and a community to not get in their own way, but use their mind as an asset. And so that's kind of what we've, uh, it's a long story, but that's kind of how we've evolved to, you know, helping frustrated golfers enjoy the ride today. Well, it's a fantastic pod. I highly recommend all of our listeners to go and, and seek it out. I'll put it in the, in the show notes here. Um, and, and you'll get a small preview of what it's like today with uh, with this conversation, hopefully. Uh, you know, one of the reasons this topic is so intriguing to me personally is because I'm, inter I'm inter interested on your opinion on this. Golf really exposes human vulnerability in a way that other sports don't necessarily. Like if you play football or hockey um, and you aren't good at it and you fail, it's almost always because of like a very real physical barrier. You're being overwhelmed by an opponent that's bigger, stronger, faster. But but in golf, there's more of a shame component to mm -hmm. it because failing shame. is such a deeply personal experience for all of us. I'm interested in your take just uh, at the core, and I want to get into what you were what you were talking about in terms of your experience and in, in mindfulness. But at the core of golf, the uh, shame that a lot of us have associated with 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 it. Why do you think that exists? Yeah, you're you're spot on, Sean, because we tie our identity to our performance. And that's one of the biggest mistakes. We had Dr. Kevin Chapman on the show, who's one of the top people in anxiety management, top psychologists in the country on this helps a lot of athletes. And uh, we talked about that. It's, you know, tying yourself to your identity to your performance is one of the biggest mistakes. You've actually heard Rory talk about it recently, a couple years ago, I think at the Masters, about that's the number one thing he's working on mentally is he's not his scores, right? But I think to, your, to answer your question directly about why golf is that way versus other sports um, is because it's the hardest, <laughs> number one. Uh, and obviously, you know, 95% of it 
is spent thinking, you know, versus playing. And I think we posted on Twitter or Instagram once, you know, if 95% of the time is spent thinking versus playing, imagine what would happen if you spent more time with how you think and how that can impact your playing the, the other 5%, right? So, you know, you've probably heard like people like Barack Obama or Justin Timberlake say that they are fine talking to millions of people or performing, but when they get a golf club in their hand, the bad shots are always there. Right. And I think the amazing thing about golf is you look at a guy like Trevor Immelman who won the masters next week, finished last, never won again. You know, there's stories like that all the time. So it doesn't matter how good you're playing. It doesn't matter how much you think you found it. It's a game of the internal battle. Mm. And the more that you embrace that and accept that, the easier all that other stuff becomes. But if you fall into the trap that most people do, which is, oh, it's just this one swing change or it's just this one, you know, club change or whatever it is that's going to get me to where I want to be. It's not usually that sometimes small changes can make huge differences for sure. But if you think something's a silver bullet, then you're in trouble. It's everything else. And it's the mindset that keeps you grounded and keeps you coming back and, you know, helps you respond after misses. But a lot of people fear the miss and golf is the game of misses. So all of that together creates embarrassment, shame, avoidance, all of this stuff. So I'm so glad that you brought this up because we actually had a podcast recently about uh, golf myths and assumptions that we have that are not necessarily true. And the one that is so associated with mental, uh, the the mental aspect of the game is that golf is 90% mental or, you know, insert whatever percentage that you want. Golfers yeah. tend to have this uh, thought that the the mental game takes up way more than than the, than the physical space. I'm, I'm interested in your opinion because obviously you've studied this extensively and uh, you know, the mechanical and the physical elements of golf. One of the things that I always contend is because uh, like if you are a struggling golfer and you say the game is almost entirely mental, aren't you also kind of saying that the primary reason that you struggle is because you, you can't get out of your own way. Like, mm -hmm. I'm just interested in what you think about that concept of that golfer is really fully being invested in golf is 90% mental, almost as a, uh, sometimes as an, as an excuse for, uh, for, you know, physical limitations or, or physical, uh, lack of desire to get better sometimes. Yeah. So if players, it's easy for an average, you know, let's say 12, 15 handicap, um, any handicap, but let's start there to say, well, once I get to a single digit, then I'll focus on my mental game. <laughs> and look, I get it. It's kind of the similar mindset of like, why would I play an expensive golf ball when I see it going into the woods every other hole? So I get it. That's the hard part about golf is if you're seeing bad results, how do you stay confident? How do you, why would that be my mind? when clearly my swing is jacked up and I'm hitting everything 50 yards right, right off the tee. Um, but what we like to talk about and what I've heard from the best sports psychologists in the world, like Dr. Joe Perrin, who wrote Zen Golf, we're having Bob Rattel on the show in a couple of weeks, Brett McCabe, who coaches John Rahm, number one player in the world. Like these, they all say similar things, which is, most people think that you have to do your mental game after that you're a good player. Mm. And what we say on the show is people think that they're going to enjoy the ride once they hop on the par train. Ooh, all I need to do is get into a rhythm. I'm making fairways and greens, couple two putts. Maybe I'll get a birdie in there a couple times, and then I'm going to really start to enjoy myself. But it's only after you start by enjoying yourself do the doors on the par train open up. Mm. And it's a counterintuitive thing. And the way that the mind works is 
how do you think your body's moving? It's your brain. Right, right. right? Everything, goes back, to Everything goes back to what you're telling it to do. Now, of course, there's physical limitations and there's always flaws. But the way I like to think about it is you got to get out of your own way first. Like Bobby Jones in The Legend of Bagger Vance is his top of mind. So sorry for multiple references because we just interviewed Stephen Pressfield. But he said that rhythm is his version of confidence in the book. Like he knows he had limitations or quote flaws, but rhythm helped him produce his best swing. Right. So is thinking about four positions in your backswing, helping your true swing come through. Is that giving you the best chance to hit a good shot? No, probably not. So it's thinking about it. it first takes the work of what helps me hit my best shots. Right. For you, Sean, is it like what's helped you? Is it tempo? Is it staying in your posture? Is it the feeling at the top? Like I'm just I'll ask you, like what's what's been a key for you in your game? I think it's speeding up my pre-shot routine, not spending as much time over the ball and just kind of having that freedom of playing like a kid, okay. seeing the target and letting it flow. I know that's kind of a cliche answer, but it, it does feel like a lot of times I've spent too long in the pre-shot routine spent too long stagnant too much tension too much muscle te muscle tension like over, over the, ball. the ball just over Got analysis it. yeah okay so for you you start your round you probably still want to get clear on what you're trying to do so you'll vocalize you know the shot at hand you'll think about you know your missed tendencies you'll think about where to miss it and where your dispersion has been and get over that ball and rip it right? That could be a key for you. You could play the entire round where you know, Sean, if you do that, you have a better chance of hitting good shots. But golf is such a technical game where one day your body feels good, the next day it doesn't, right? So it's really easy to get bogged down and get in your own way. And a lot of times, again, it's counterintuitive, but what I say to people that have never thought about the mental game ever is... A lot of times the thing that you're trying to achieve or avoid is getting in the way of you actually doing it. Mm. So not missing it right off the tee. If that's what your focus is, you're giving yourself a greater chance to hit it right. Not because it's actually a myth. People have said before that your brain doesn't know the difference between don't and, and do. So by saying don't miss it right, you're, you hit it right. That's actually not true. What it does is it creates um, avoidance, which creates tension, which then creates interference in your true swing. Mm. And a lot of times when you're trying not to miss it, you're going to miss it worse. So that's, Sean, a common example of what happens when people start the round off on the front nine. And let's say they shoot a 45 or a 50, right? And then they think, oh, well, this day's ruined. I'm just going to play. And then they shoot a 38 on the back right? That's the power of the mind because the first nine you were trying to score well, which was creating tension and getting in your way. And then the minute you let go of that, your true swing came out, you started to get into a rhythm, you rode the par train, right? So that's a perfect example for people to kind of understand that the mental game is not sitting on the tee box with your legs crossed meditating. You know, meditation can help. Breath work is one of the things I've seen helps a lot of people, especially for you over the ball. If you added letting a breath out before you let it go, that's just a mechanism of clearing tension. So that could be a key that you try, right? Right, right. But a lot of people think that the mental game is this positive self-talk, meditative guru type thing, which those things can help. But a lot of times it's... um simple awareness training, understand what you're trying to do and accepting bad shots when they happen and getting back to your plan and plugging along as cliche as that sounds. Um, a sports psychologist once told me that the golden nuggets are cliches, um, okay. but we ignore them because you hear them a lot. So I, bl I believe it may have been Tom Watson who said he, he didn't learn how to win until he learned how to breathe. I think golf. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah. Golfers really kind of, you know, underestimate 
that piece of uh, of the game game for sure. I, I'm I'm interested. You know, one thing that you were talking about the concept of a scorecard having results in your hand that uh, you know it's such a golf is so performative in many ways. But then you have a, a number that is tied to you. I, I remember as a young kid uh, playing with my dad in a father son tournament. And uh, you shot 92 in an alternate shot tournament. And I remember looking at the scores coming in and my dad said, uh, that, that score is respectable. And that's, that's a, uh, a line that a lot of people have when they finish a tournament, talking about their score and how it relates to them and how good or, good or bad they felt about that. And then another thing attached to the mental game is that you get on the range and that goes away and you're just playing and there's no consequences, but getting to that point where we're on the course and there's no consequences, that's a huge barrier and a huge leap for people. And that's kind of the number one thing that a lot of people bring up with the mental game in golf. So I'm interested, uh, you, you mentioned mindfulness a little bit, how that connects to that, you know, freedom of not having consequences and trying to bring that to the course. Yeah, it's a great question, Sean. Um, golf's a game of recovery. There are literal obstacles designed to get in your way. That is the game. And how often do you get in the trees and hit an amazing shot? And how often are you in the middle of the fairway after an amazing drive, your best drive of the day, and chunk it or pull it, right? Um, the reason why the shots in the trees perform so great is because you have a singular focus. You're just trying to get out. Right. I like to use this analogy of um, after the Queen's Gambit came out, everyone kind of got back into chess. Right. <laughs> and I like to use chess as a an analogy. And this is something that's helped a lot of our listeners uh, when and not just her from the show, but anyone that's playing chess, when you get backed into a corner by your opponent. What are your thoughts you usually look at in your mind all of the moves you can make and you just make the best move you can. You ask yourself, what's the best move here? And you make your move. What you don't do is get pissed at yourself for getting backed into a corner because that's the game that's in front of you right now. And you just hope that, okay, if I can get away on this move, maybe I can set up that move. But each move, all I'm doing is looking at my options and ask myself, what's my best move here? I make the move, and then let's see where it, where it goes, right? That's how the pros play golf. Hmm. If you're in the trees, what's my best move here, right? Is it right. that right window that's super small that would only give me 30 more yards, but I've got this huge window to punch out, and I'd still have a mid-iron in my hand? That's probably a better move because... I don't want to get stuck. That's going to bring double into play if I hit that tree on the right and I'm still in the trees, right? So let's just get out, give myself a yardage, give myself the best angle, and let's see what my best move is from there, right? A lot of people, again, a cliche is one shot at a time, so people don't hear that. I like a mantra for me in some of my best rounds is what's my best move here? Mm. And then I play, right? So it's... um. That's a simple example of how to think of the game for what it is. It's a game of recovery. And Sean, I'll ask you, what have been some of the most exciting moments for you on the course? Has it been making an up and down par from an impossible spot? Or is it making an everyday par fairway to green two putt? Uh, the, the most... Uh recognizable shots in my memory are always the ones that were the roller coaster rounds or holes or mm -hmm. things that something very unique happened where I was out of position, which is regularly. And <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would definitely say that because there's nothing really exciting about hitting a fairway and hitting a green and two putting. I, I've heard the phrase great golf is boring golf. Mm -hmm. Also in, in terms of being able to narrow that window of focus, uh, you know, sometimes some of my best recovery shots have been in very thick rough with a difficult lie and just focusing on clean contact. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think that's, that's something that I've been able to focus on throughout the years when I, when I've gotten out of position. Well, think about what Julian Edelman said to Tom Brady in the, I forget what year is it? Was that 16 versus the Falcons? 
I can't remember. Yeah, it may have been. Yeah. 17. I, I don't know. Um, but they were down to what, 28 to three or whatever it was. Yeah. And what did Julian Edelman say to Tom Brady on the sideline? This could be one hell of a story. Mm. Right. So I like to remember things like that. That's what the best do is you could be out of position. You could have just hit the one shot you hate the most. Mine is a huge block off the tee. I struggled with that for years. And um, it took me a while to realize that I was getting in my own way. Right. So we all have that shot. But if you remember that the stuff that gives you the most joy and the stories come from the recovery, then suddenly you're not getting down on yourself and feeling anxious and the pressure and feeling shame like you spoke to at the beginning. You're thinking to yourself, well, this could be one hell of a story. And what's my best move here? And suddenly your mindset and just feel the energy of that. I don't want to get too meta on this podcast, but think about the energy of that versus, oh my God, I can't believe I did that again. I'm so embarrassed. I suck. Think about how heavy that feels. And then think back to my earlier point about what creates tension and then gets in my way, doesn't help me, doesn't give me the best chance to hit a good shot. I, I just had a, uh, a a flashback uh, one time I was playing with my dad and things were not going well. Neither of us were playing very well. And uh, he, he missed a fairway well to the right. And his ball was kind of in a position where uh, he had a kind of a gap between these two trees, like kind of a like field goal posts. And uh, and he, he looked at me and he's like, watch this. And neither of us were playing very well. And he hits it right through. The, the this very narrow field goal post and kind of looks back at me and he, I remember like his uh, his tongue was red from Gatorade and like that's a distinct vivid yeah. memory that just was brought up as we were talking about this but it's funny as you're mentioning those tend to stick with you and some of the you know mundane pieces of that round I, I could never recall any of that's those. amazing <laughs> well think about what your dad did without even probably realizing into that moment he probably, you guys weren't playing great. He's not thinking about what it means anymore. He's thinking about what he's doing. And he said, watch this. Mm -hmm. So that had a little bit of confidence. He committed and he tried to pull off something and he did it. Right. So often yeah. we focus on what things mean instead of what we're trying to do. So if people shift their focus to what they're actually trying to do and let go of what it means, you got a hell of a better chance to hit a good shot in the hardest game in the world. Absolutely. I, I feel like this is a good time to bring in a, uh, an example into this, uh, you know, like a common hot topic in golf mental game right now is uh, that Padraig Harrington quote about the innocence and freedom of youth. Uh, and I, I believe he's, he kind of was talking about that in relation to uh to, to Rory and, and I'm I'm specifically thinking about the, the current dichotomy between someone like Colin Morikawa and, and Rory one is still kind of naturally playing golf like a kid or at least it seems like that there's kind of an unencumbered joy mm -hmm. to the way that he plays golf consistently there's some 2014 Rory in modern day Colin Morikawa mm. at the moment and, and on the other side you have Rory this incredibly self-aware human but admittedly and from the outside as well probably worn down by pro golf's uh pressures and maybe some of this, the success that he's had maybe using you know money or uh, success as a crutch as he's kind of publicly yep. talked about i mean the talent is obviously still there for him but rarely do we see the type of uh freedom from rory that we saw in the past when he was kind of at the earlier stages of, of his career and, uh, you know, the, the freedom that we're seeing from someone like Morikawa right now, I'm just intrigued your, your opinion on those two players and maybe what we can learn from their experiences in terms of what they've gone through and their ability to uh, to have freedom. And then we've seen Rory kind of struggle with that internally and try to kind of get that back recently. Yeah, great question. Um, we had Rick Sessinghouse. Uh, Colin's mental and swing coach on the podcast, actually the week before Colin won the open. So pretty Good amazing. Luck. If you haven't listened to that one, that's one of our highest listened to shows. 
Um, so pretty amazing to hear how Colin was prepping and the crazy travel abroad and then the Olympics and, you know, all that stuff that he'd never been through before. And Rick was actually just on Claude Harmon's show. I heard this clip that said, you know, people ask Colin about pressure. Colin's mindset is good. I want pressure. Pressure means I'm, that's what I signed up for. If you're a pro golfer and you don't have pressure, that means you're not in the hunt, <laughs> right? Do you really right. want to like, think about that? People want to win tournaments, but they don't want the pressure that comes with winning. It's like, the I think Will Smith yeah. once said, people want to go to heaven, but they don't want to die. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Same thing. So, um, what Colin is really good at from talking with Rick is Colin embraces challenges. Like when he was coming down the stretch to win the PGA, his first major, he looked at the scoreboard and sure there might be nerves. That's natural. But his first, his affirmation to himself, his reminder is why not me? Yeah, I've I trained belong. for this. Why not me? This let's do this. Let's go after it. You know, let's um, enjoy the hunt of it instead of being tentative. And so, look, I've never talked to Rory. I don't know him. But from what I've heard in interviews and just the feeling and the energy that he carries, it kind of goes back to the light versus heavy example mm -hmm. I gave. Rory, you can definitely feel to your point. It seems like he's gotten a little bit weighed down by the pressure. And I think that is a very simple, the simple difference, in my opinion, is Rory probably spends too much mental energy on what things mean, while mm -hmm. Colin focuses most of his mental energy on what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. Colin's pretty focused on execution, but Colin, I also know from Rick, is one of the most, if not the most competitive guy out there. The guy wants to be number one in the world. Guy wants to win every tournament. Uh, we've had Urban Golf Performance uh mac the founder of that on the show i know leo head of performance there really well as well and i've heard from them that colin is super competitive like as competitive as it gets so clearly he wants the results but i think he has a really good understanding and this is probably credit to rick being a swing coach that also is a mental performance coach to instill this in colin from a very young age that, yeah, but that stuff doesn't actually help me win. So I can acknowledge that that's true. I can want to win. I can want to be number one player in the world. But what's going to get me to number one player in the world? It's hitting great shots. It's making putts. So, again, it all goes back to what's my best move here. What gives me my best chance in this hole, in this moment? And that's how Colin plays. He plays with confidence, commitment. And, you know, a present executional focused mindset where, you know, it's not easy for Rory either to start with that much success. Spieth went through the similar thing. So, you know, expectations are a very powerful thing. And when they go up, it's interference, you know, can start to prevent you from playing like a kid, like you said. I was having a debate with someone uh, about Colin Morikawa and his his career moving forward, and uh, the over under we put at for majors was uh, four and a half for him, and obviously he's at two right now. And I think the uh, you know the optimist in a lot of us would say, oh, of course he's going to get more than mm -hmm. four and a half in his in his career. He has you know twenty plus years of golf ahead of him, and he's uh, incredibly talented. But one of the points that I've heard made kind of uh on the underside of that four and a half is that over time you know he may have more responsibilities like rory is the head of a, of a corporation essentially with uh, with all of his responsibilities um do you think that over time that morikawa might feel that burden or do you think that he, he is just different he's just built differently maybe than rory is uh well i'm just interested in your opinion on that yeah, uh, that's a good question. I would say the fact that Morikawa is the best iron player in the world, and he's basically 
you know, a Hogan in that realm, just like of historic fashion. His his iron play is so good. I mean, that's what Tiger was. You know, he's the best iron player in the world, especially long irons. So I think what Colin does well is, and Rick talked about this, he plays within himself. He knows his strengths. He's not going to go chase distance. He's long enough. But because he's such a good iron player, he's not going to try and chase speed. And, you know, he's going to get stronger. He's, I'm sure he might try and hit it a little bit longer, but um, he's going to lean into what he does well. So he's going to hit greens. He's going to give himself chances on the greens. He's going to work on his putting. And, you know, I think, I, I think that could really help him. You know, from what I've heard from Rick and what I hear from interviews and other players, uh, it just seems like Colin's got a great team around him. And he, the kid's a, a champion, you know, from mindset through the game to his work, like the guy's working out the day after he wins the Open. You know, he just seems to be built in that way. But that's not to say that there's probably going to be ups and downs. You know, he lost the lead in, uh, was that Vegas? Um, and, you know, I talked to Rick after it and he was like, oh yeah, he's going to be fine. He's, he's mad. He's frustrated about it, but you know, I think he's got a great nucleus, um, of game, no weakness. And his, his iron play is just so good that I, I would, I know it, it's easy to take the over, but I got to still go with the over. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to transition to something else that is often talked about in the mental game, and it's related to Morikawa somewhat. Uh, Morikawa kind of has in the past struggled with short putting, uh, not so much from that, you know, eight to 20 foot range necessarily. He's, he's actually, you know, the stats show that he's, he's pretty good from that range. Um, but the concept of short putting and and then uh, relaying that to the yips with short putting. I mean, we've seen that th historically with someone like Bernhard Longer. Uh, more recently, we've seen Will Zalatoris uh, struggle with uh, with short putting and kind of have some strokes that can be as, as yippy. Um, your experience with that, is that related to what you've kind of said to this point in terms of letting go of expectations and just focusing on your movement and what you can control in that moment or what what is kind of your experience and your learnings having having studied kind of uh you know yips and, and short putting yeah so i coach a guy that um has full swing yips mm -hmm. not putting but sometimes they creep into putting um and what i've learned is yips are caused by two things it's embarrassment and avoidance and the two play off of each other so the more you try, the more embarrassed you get because you're, you know, you don't want people to see, I mean, clear, clearly in those moments, especially for short putts, it's assumed you make it right. So the embarrassment of missing it is higher and therefore you want to avoid yipping or missing. And it's a terrible cycle. Um, so, you know, that's where people kind of lean into you know, things beyond impact that help you become an executional key. So whether that means focusing on a spot, you know, in front of the ball or focusing more on your stroke, like one of the guys, uh, Ward Jarvis, we've had on the show three times who has become pretty known for his mental coaching for Brennan Todd, helped him turn around back-to-back -back champion who almost left the tour. He now works with Lucas Glover and, Jimmy Walker. And I've seen Ward on tour do drills with chipping or putting where you have them just kind of do their stroke and you don't know whether or not you're going to put a ball down or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say to the average player, if you've struggled with short putts, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about not missing it? Right. Are you worried about the embarrassment? Well, what, would be a more productive thought? What would give you a better chance to make it? Well, for me, I ask people, hey, do you think you could roll that ball over uh, Mark two inches in front of your ball? And they say, of course. 
Well, do that. <laughs> right? Right, right. That's your only job. Joe Parent, author of Zen Golf on our show, has said your job is not to make or hole a putt. In his book of how to make every putt, making a putt means starting the ball on your line with the stroke, your intended stroke. And if it goes in, great. And if it doesn't, you did the best you could do. We've all hit perfect putts that don't go in. We've all hit putts off the toe that do, right? <laughs> so I look at golf as a game of chance more than a game of skill because all you can do is give yourself the best chance. So for short putts, give yourself the best chance by hitting your spot. Keep your body quiet, stay down, roll it over your spot, look up, see if it goes in. But the minute, see the difference of that feeling and the weight of that versus I have to make this because everyone's watching and it's going to be super embarrassing. So yeah. that's that's the power of a simple shift. I, I think uh, the stats say there are maybe eight to 12 guys every year who make every single putt within three feet on the PGA tour. There's a group of about eight to 12 of them usually per year. So there is that embarrassment even for the rest of us, even though we're probably going to miss more than uh, more, more than they do. I, I've heard people say, try to uh, pick out a certain part of the hole on, on short putts. But I think what you're saying makes more sense because uh, it's more focused on the, uh, the intermediate target than it is the, the finishing target. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I did want to talk about dividing lines between the best and the, you know, scratch golfers among us, and then some of the uh, ones that are, are are less talented or have high, higher handicaps. And we've touched on a lot of that to this point. But what is something that a a normal golfer who's just coming into the game, who's maybe a you know 15, 20 handicap, just kind of getting used to the mental part of golf? What is what is something that they commonly get wrong in terms of the mental game that that's that somebody else who's at a higher level just is so much more proficient at maybe something that we don't necessarily think about all the time i have a very simple answer for you sean it is uh the best players especially really good amateurs and even pros they are so much more conservative than you think they are um we had uh ali osborne on the show you know, runner-up at the USAM sure. at SMU. Bandon, um, SMU guy. And he talked about how when he went out on tour for the first time, played in US Open and a Masters, he's like, these guys, they're good, but they're not nearly as good as the Golf Channel makes them seem. The Golf Channel is a highlight reel. Yes, they're amazing, but the Golf Channel is a highlight reel. So the fact that they're showing you made putts is because you don't want to watch <laughs> people miss putts every day. On every right. hole, right? So what I've heard from many different pros is the best players swing aggressively to conservative targets mm. and amateurs swing aggressively to aggressive targets. But it's not that they're necessarily trying to be aggressive. It's that they're not actually thinking about what they're doing at all. So there's no intention. There's no what's my best move here, like we talked about. There's just a okay back flag 150 okay i'm gonna hit my nine iron or eight iron whatever it is and you thin it and it goes over the green and now you're short-sighted and you're in thick grass and you have no green to work with the green slopes away from you and you just made a double or a bogey when you had a pretty good birdie op right um the pros don't make those mistakes very often they think about it much more surgically and you don't need to be good to think this way. You can just say like one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is you just, you sit, you shoot the flag and you hit whatever yardage you think you have. So the 150 example, that's a nine for me. Sometimes if I really get my nine, I can get 155, right? And if that pin is tucked back, I'm not going to, hit my nine anymore mm -hmm. because I don't want to even bring that into play. And if I know that's in play, it's going to be much harder for me to commit because there's a potential I'm going to be penalized for hitting a perfect shot. So I might actually take pitching wedge and rip at that pitching wedge because I know there's 0% chance I can hit that long. 
And now I've got the whole green to work with. And I have a, I've created a, a strategy and a club selection that allows me to be committed. It gives me a better chance to be committed, right? A lot of people just get the yardage and hit. Um, but and, and this relates to uh, to Scott Fawcett, who I know yeah, you guys we, have had in the show and yeah. the decade method in terms of you know what people would probably consider aggressive off the tee and more conservative into greens. And that's something that he's preached in terms of uh, you know in terms of club selection, uh, kind of letting birdies happen by accident, if you yep. will. Yeah. We had a plus five handicap, Sean, come on the show and tell me he's aiming 20 to 30 feet left or right of the pin or short of the pin, whatever it is, uh, almost every time, like 90 plus percent of the time. He said a plus five. This guy just qualified for U.S. mid-ams. He is one of the best players in Illinois. He said birdies are happy accidents. <laughs> and that's coming from a plus five. Like, think about what a plus five even means. That means your best 20 scores on average, you're shooting. Think about what you're shooting. You know, you're shooting under par. Right. So, I mean, to hear a guy that makes that many birdies say birdies are happy accidents, why are we getting frustrated because we didn't stick it to two feet? You know, it, that's a huge misconception. Like Colt Nose told us once on the show that when you have a 135 club and the flag's 132, don't choke down and try and hit <laughs> three less yards. Hit your 135. Right. If it goes three yards past the hole, you're going to be fine. It's going to be a perfect green hit, and you're probably not going to hit it perfect. You might actually miss it close to the flag. But once you start trying to tinker and hit it one foot to the green, it's harder to be committed. You're not used to that shot as much. So again, making the game easier on yourself, give yourself the best chance by hitting yardages you're comfortable with in the fattest parts of greens and the fattest part of the fairway. Make the hardest game easier and see what happens. I want to make a YouTube video. We haven't done it yet. So we haven't really started our YouTube channel yet, but I want to do a whole round where I look at what the yardage is to the fattest part of the fairway and the fattest part of the green and see what I shoot. And I know I'm going to be fighting my ego the whole time, but I really think if golfers played that way, they would be amazed by what they shoot. And I kind of wanted to end this by circling back to where we started about the, the shame piece, which I think relates very closely to the ego piece. Why do we feel the need to always grab driver, for example, on a narrow hole where our, our dispersion may be, you know, 35 yards in either direction from our target line with our driver on average. And this is a tree lined hole that is, uh, you know, 20 yards from the, from the target line, you're going to be in trouble, but we still feel the need to grab a driver to kind of fulfill that sense of ego because everybody else is doing it. Why, in your experience, is that something that, that exists so so commonly? Well, you hear those statements like, well, I didn't uh, wake up early or pay this money to lay up, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's fun. It's fun yeah. to say that. You know, it's not, a, it's not anything to be ashamed of. Like, it's natural human tribalism is a real thing. Like, we want to be accepted. We want to be like our friends. We want to... It's fun to all grab driver and try and pull off a shot, right? So ask yourself what you're trying to get out of that day. If you want to just rip it and have fun and drink beers with your friends, go ahead, take driver. But then you're not allowed to get pissed. So <laughs> right. choose, right? Right. If you're getting pissed, then maybe ask yourself, what am I trying to do here? And with my misses and my dispersion, and to Scott Fawcett's point, like how many yards am I going to lose? Am I, am I confident with what the yardage would, would leave me if I take three wood or hybrid? People ask me why I hit driver all the time because I hit my three wood incredible. But my driver is something I've struggled with. So, you know, that is, again, I think that's in life. People struggle with, like Colin does such a great job at being true to them and and leaning into what gives you the best chance to succeed instead of what others think of you.
So ask yourself what you want that day, you know, and I bet you, you might want to say, I'm just going to have fun and yuck it up with the buddies. But if you're getting frustrated, maybe shooting a nice score will help you feel pretty good too. And while everyone else is pulling driver, I like to think of it as like, I almost get energy from that. Cause like, I like thinking that I'm being more strategic. I like hitting clubs that no one else hits. You know, you can actually use that to your advantage a little bit, then see it in a way of like, I'm not like them. I'm being weird or they're going to make fun of me. It's like, no, I'm going to play my game and, you know, see how it works. Treat everything like an experiment, you know, um, instead of thinking everything is black or white, the psychologist, I'll end on this. The psychologist I talked about, Dr. Kevin Chapman said an amazing statement to me. He said, one of the biggest problems today is people treat their thoughts like facts instead of hypotheses. Mm. Treat them like a hypothesis, be more experimental, lean into the learning, see what works, and then double down on what that is instead of putting all this pressure on yourself that you have to be perfect. Yeah. You are not your thoughts. It's not a yeah. direct equation. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for, for coming on. This was a ton of fun. Learned a, do a dozen new things uh, out, of, out of this conversation. We'll have to have you you on uh, again at some point. Uh, yeah, sure. A lot of, uh, a lot of fun to uh, to have to have this conversation and uh, best of luck with everything with the par train uh, once again everybody should go and listen to some of these episodes because uh, it's just amazing that there aren't that many pods out there that really focus specifically on the mental game in golf and you guys have one of the uh, the most informative out there so once again thank you so much for joining us thank you sean and just anyone listening um also go to the partrain.com we also have mental coaching available um, so just shoot us a note there and happy to see if we can help. And thanks again to Evan of the par train podcast. I put his info below in the show notes. So go ahead and check out everything they have to offer. The graph golf podcast is off next week, but we will be back with three episodes in February. In the meantime, you can read new articles on our website, graph.golf. This week, we are talking about how high to tee up your golf ball, depending on each shot. So go ahead and check that out and be on the lookout for that one. And we will see you again on February 7th. Cheers. <laughs>